Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and book recommendation episodes, as well as insider information on all of the newest releases that I personally endorse and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Have you read a book recently that really resonated with you and makes you want to read a book more like it? If so, submit a read-alike request to me through my Google form located in today's show notes and tell me why you loved it, and I will suggest some similar reads on a future Tuesday episode. If you are interested in reading some great books before they publish, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon group to access additional content including early reads and pre-pub author chats and bonus episodes. For April, my selection is The Comeback Summer by writing duo Allie Brady. I just added Banyan Moon by Tao Tai for May and The Bones of the Story by Carol Goodman for June. The link to join is in the show notes. Today, I am chatting with Rachel Beanland about The House is on Fire. Rachel is the author of the novel Florence Adler Swims Forever. She is a graduate of the University of South Carolina, and earned her MFA in creative writing from Virginia Commonwealth University. She lives with her husband and three children in Richmond, Virginia. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. And now for my read-alike request segment. While every book is unique and stands alone, certain elements of books we love really stick with us. While lots of websites use algorithms to try and recommend similar books, I rarely find that these recommendations make sense because they do not focus on what it is I liked about a particular book. That is what I want to tap into, the aspects of the book that appealed to the requester, and to focus on finding those elements in other books. Today's request is from Carol, and she selected The Invisible Woman by Erica Roebuck a book that I absolutely love and recommend to people all the time. In The Invisible Woman, Roebuck brings World War II heroine Virginia Hall to life, highlighting her immense bravery as an Allied spy in German-occupied France during the war. Carol enjoyed the book because she loved learning about a real person with whom she was unfamiliar, but learning about them through fiction. She enjoys biographical fiction and wants to find some more tales about lesser-known women or lesser-known events. This is the perfect read-alike request for me, and I could go on and on about wonderful recommendations, but I finally settled on three. My first recommendation is The Chanel Sisters by Judith Little. In The Chanel Sisters, Judith chronicles the lives of Antoinette and Gabrielle Coco Chanel from their early years at the convent orphanage in France. Their time at the orphanage left a lasting impression on both girls and forged a determination in Coco to create a better life for herself. I think this is a great read-alike for The Invisible Woman because little is known about the early years of Antoinette and Coco Chanel's lives, and little beautifully depicts how their early lives influence the iconic business that Coco ultimately creates. Virginia Hall is such a strong and purposeful woman, and Coco Chanel was very much the same. My next recommendation is Fifth Avenue Glamour Girl by Renee Rosen, which comes out in late April. This was a Patreon early read for my group and was a huge hit. 
This book tells the story of Estee Lauder and how she went from selling face cream out of a New York City beauty parlor to revolutionizing the cosmetics industry. It's phenomenal, and it is another story about a strong and relevant woman making it a great read-alike for the invisible woman. Much like the Chanel sisters, Virginia Hall also shared a lot of characteristics with Estee Lauder. They were both tough and driven women. The last recommendations for read-alike requests for the invisible woman are The Cottingly Secret and When We Were Young and Brave by Hazel Gaynor. The Cottingly Secret tells the story of the young girls who fooled the world, including Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, about their alleged discovery of fairies. And When We Were Young and Brave tells the story of girl guide leaders who led their troop through incarceration in Japanese internment camps in China during World War II. Hazel Gaynor is one of my favorite historical fiction writers, and she almost always highlights true events or true individuals or both. That makes her books great read-alikes for The Invisible Woman. The Personal Librarian by Marie Benedict and Victoria Christopher Murray is obviously a great read-alike as well, but I feel like many people have already read it, so I'm just giving it a brief mention. They have a new book coming out in June about the friendship between Eleanor Roosevelt and Mary McLeod Bethune, which should make another great read-alike. I could go on and on about this topic, so if you need more recommendations for historical fiction books about real women and real events, please feel free to reach out to me through my website. Thanks, Carol, for submitting a read-alike request, and I hope you enjoy these recommendations. And now, on to my conversation with Rachel Beanland. Welcome, Rachel. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad you're here. I just loved The House is on Fire, and I can't wait to talk about it. Oh, thanks. Well, why don't we start out with you giving me a quick synopsis of the book for those that won't have read it yet. Yeah. The House is on Fire is based on the true story of the Richmond Theater Fire, which happened in 1811 in my hometown of Richmond, Virginia. The fire happened the night after Christmas. The theater was packed with people, 600 people, you know, at least were in the building. And when a backdrop caught fire backstage, it, you know, resulted in just complete and utter chaos. By the end of the night, 72 people were dead, including Virginia's governor, a former senator, the president of the Bank of Virginia, you know, all of these kind of people in power, but also a lot of women the majority of the people who died were women. And so this is a story that I've always known ever since I moved to Richmond, but it's a story that I don't think the rest of the United States knows, uh, despite the fact that at the time that the fire happened, it was the largest kind of single day calamity that the United States had ever experienced. Well, my next question was going to be, how did you learn about it? But it sounds like it's one of those things you've just known since you lived in Richmond. You know, it's funny because I got really lucky in that I learned the story of the Richmond Theater Fire the very first day I moved to Richmond. Oh, wow. I hadn't even moved here yet. A realtor was driving me around in a car and kind of pointing out neighborhoods. And we were driving down Broad Street into, you know, on our way to Church Hill. And and he pointed out the window and said, hey, you know, he pointed at Monumental Church, which was built as a as a monument to the victims of the theater fire. And he said, there used to be a theater on that spot. And, you know, a lot of people died in in this fire. And at the time I kind of assumed, oh, this is a story that all of Richmond knows. And now I have been, you know, welcomed into the fold of people who, who know this story. But what I've learned 
after, you know, 15 years of living in Richmond is that a lot of people don't know the story. I would say less than 50% of, of Richmonders know the story of the Richmond Theater Fire because it happened a long, long time ago. So I, I think there will be a, a lot of aspects of this book that are, that are new, even to people um, who are local. Well, how did you decide to write about it? You know, I had always been interested in the fire and I had always kind of paid attention when, you know, nonfiction pieces would appear about the, about the fire. But it really wasn't until the pandemic hit. My, my first novel, Florence Adler Swims Forever, came out right in the middle of the pandemic, like July of 2020. So, you know, that summer was completely chaotic. My family was, you know, in our house. I was launching a book on Zoom, you know, kept running up and down the stairs to my office. My children who went to public school, you know, the public schools in Richmond closed for over a year. And so we were just all in the house all the time. <laughs> and I had been in the middle, you know, starting the beginning kind of, I would say, of another novel that was going to be set further afield and was going to require a lot of travel. Boo-hoo, you know, poor, poor me. And then when the pandemic hit, though, I realized that I was not going to be getting on an airplane anytime soon. I didn't know when the next time I was going to get on an airplane was. And it started to make me really nervous that I was going to have kind of a, a novel that was half cooked and, and not be able to, to finish it. So I started thinking about projects that I could work on that would be set a little closer to home, that would be a little more conducive to my pandemic lifestyle. And as I started to think about stories that I might set in Richmond, the fire kept coming back, you know, kept, I kept thinking about, about the Richmond theater fire. And, you know, one of the, the challenges, but it's also one of the, the kind of wonderful aspects of the story is that there, it was very well documented and there were so many people affected that part of the challenge became figuring out who, you know, which of the, which of the true stories, um, who of the real players I might kind of incorporate into my fictional narrative, but really, yeah, it was, it was the pandemic that, that did it. I love that you keep leading me into my next question because my <laughs> very next question was going to be, it was a huge fire with a lot of people impacted. So how did you decide to tell the story generally, like, you know, the approach you were going to take to telling the story and then who would tell it? Yeah. So, you know, I had written, my first novel was a multiple point of view novel and I, I followed seven characters actually in, in that book, but they were all members of the same family or, you know, kind of connected to the same family. And so they were always in and out of each other's scenes. And I really, I just had a lot of fun, you know, writing that novel. This novel presented different challenges. The fire, one of the things that was so interesting about the fire and, and really the South in this time period, I mean, we're in 1811, we're not close to the Civil War yet, is that in 1811, in an urban environment in the South, like Richmond, the life that a lot of enslaved people were living was one that had, you know, I hesitate to use the word more freedom because, of course, there was not freedom. But they had the ability, a lot of enslaved people had the ability to move around the city and had a little more agency over their day-to-day -day kind of comings and goings. 
in later years, there would be rules that went into effect that, you know, if, if you were enslaved and you had bought your freedom, you had to leave the Commonwealth, but at this time you could stay. So this is all to say that the, there was a cross section of people in the theater that really did in many ways represent the population in Richmond. You had people, you know, white people with a lot of money who were up in the boxes, um, which were the, the highest ticket, you know, prices. There was a pit, which was, you know, the, the first floor. And then there was a colored gallery, what they called a colored gallery. So I knew that the fire had affected a lot of people and a lot of people from different uh, races and classes. And it, it became very important to me to tell the story of the fire from these different perspectives. Like, you know, I wanted to make sure that I kind of captured the full experience. And so as I started to build out my, uh, my characters, I, I follow four people. We, we start the night of the fire and then we follow them for about three days um, until the, the funeral, which occurs about three days into the, the book. But I, I was really looking for characters that represented these different points of view, that represented these different um, ways of experiencing this tragedy. and so. I chose a young boy who was working backstage as as a stagehand and who was, you know, kind of partially responsible for for the blaze. I chose a uh, woman, a, a white kind of middle class, upper middle class, a more elite woman who was sitting in the boxes, Sally Henry Campbell, and she's actually the daughter of Patrick Henry, um, and so his daughter was believed to have been at the theater that night. I follow an enslaved man, Gilbert Hunt, who was a re- based on a real man named Gilbert Hunt, who was a, an enslaved blacksmith and was not at the theater that night, but is documented as having saved about a dozen white women from the blaze. And then he, uh, he later bought his own freedom. And then I follow an enslaved woman um, named Cecily Patterson who kind of looks around that night, you know, she's in the theater, looks around that night and thinks to herself, you know, this might be a good time to uh, slip away with, without anyone being the wiser. And, and historians believe that that may have happened in a, in a few cases. So those ended up being the four people I, I chose to focus on who are, you know, all of course fictional, but, but some of them are based on, on real people. I really wanted to focus on characters who uh, would not have had voices in 1811, would not have been the loudest person in the room. And even in the case of Sally Henry Campbell, who had more access to power than many of the characters, she was still a woman living in 1811, and and so her, her power was limited. So it had to be interesting to start with real characters and then bring them to the page, have to fill in the gaps maybe go whichever direction you want with them. Who was the hardest to write and who was the easiest? Great question. You know, I actually had the hardest time with Jack, the the boy who is the stagehand, who's backstage with all these theater types. And he desperately wants to be accepted by them and to be invited into the theater company But he also has a conscience and he knows that what they did was very wrong. And 
And, you know, for people who are listening, I don't want to give too much away, but the, the theater company makes the decision. They, they do not come clean with their role in the fire. They, they look around for the, the nearest scapegoat and, and things get, get worse from there. So, so Jack figuring out kind of his motivations and, and I, I didn't have much to go on with him in terms of the historical record The you know, the historical record, we know a, a young stagehand was, you know, at least partially responsible for, for the fire, but, you know, a lot of his identity was kind of intentionally obscured in the inquest and a, a lot of the documents that were generated as a result of, of the investigation. So you really had to fill in for him because his name wasn't even included in the investigation, correct? Yeah, yeah. He he got a, a fictional name. I, I, you know, I went back and forth on on whether to to give these characters fictional names, you know, if I if I was basing them on on someone real. And and at the end of the day, I always feel like giving them that name is a way to kind of pay tribute to the to real person who who walked, you know, walked this this path. Well, and to honor those people that were there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So particularly with Gilbert Hunt, I mean, you know, his story is one that, you know, everyone in, in not just Richmond, but everyone in the United States should know. It's, it's a really incredible story. I mean, not only did he save these um, dozen or so, you know, women from the fire, but he then later saved a couple of hundred people when the Virginia State Penitentiary burned. And, and so he's just a really remarkable uh, human being. And it's only kind of in recent years that we've, we've started to pay a little more attention to him. Yes, he's a fabulous character, and he did do a lot of heroic things. I thought it was so interesting in your author's note, and then you mentioned it a minute ago, that Virginia didn't allow people who purchased their freedom to stay in the Commonwealth. I was not aware of that. Yeah, I mean it it got really complicated, right? Because it creates more unrest, it you know, it created more opportunity for enslaved people to try to go, you know, because it was easier to kind of hide in plain sight. And so the in general a lot of the legislation around slavery got much tighter as we move through the 19th century until by the time we get to the Civil War, you know, things have tightened considerably um, and are much, much more, you know, miserable than they than they might have been, you know, 50 years prior. Another, you know, piece of legislation that that is referenced in the book is this idea, you know, Gilbert Hunt was taught to read. And around the time he was taught to read, that was still okay, right? It, the, if you were the person who had taught him, you might not be um, punished. But in, in subsequent years, you know, that, that would have been completely unacceptable. It's just so crazy to think about in not a good way. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I, when I set out to write this book, I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to write a book about the Richmond Theater fire. And, you know, I'm so interested in this and, and won't this be, you know, great. But of course, you, you really can't write a book set in 1811 in Richmond, Virginia, w- without it at some level being a book about slavery. You know, I think that's, that's true for writing about many parts of the South in this era. It, it permeated everything. So of course, it, it permeated the arts, it um, permeated, you know, tragedies like the fire, the ways that communities responded to tragedies. 
And, and so you see that throughout the story of, of the theater fire. I think that's exactly right. During that time period, anywhere in the South, it is a way of life, sadly, but it is something where you need to make sure you've represented it in your story. Right. One of the things I loved about the book was how vivid the fire was in terms of how well you brought it to life. Like I felt like I was there and when the women are trying to escape and they're being dropped down out the window and all of that, was it really hard to bring all of that to the page or was that just part of your writing? You know, I will admit that I have a writer friend who used to serve in a fire department during the pandemic. You know, I was writing the early pages of this book. His name is Matt Crickio. And this was back when no one was vaccinated. And so it was, I had two, two writer friends and I would get together on my patio. We had a little heat lamp and we would sit six feet apart from one another, kind of triangulated. And we would read these early pages and I was reading their work and, you know, we were kind of doing a mini, mini workshop. And he was basically the only human I I was seeing, you know, outside of my family. And I can remember sitting out on my patio and us looking at my, I I live in a row home in, in Richmond and looking at the distance between floors and, you know, him saying, okay, this is the way it would have worked. Cause we knew in the, in the historical record, you know, Gilbert had, caught these women from, you know, that someone was passing them to him. This Dr. McCaw was, Dr. McCaw was passing women to him from an upstairs window in the record. It doesn't differentiate whether it's the third floor or the second floor, but, but Matt was great about saying, you know, no, it would have been the second, it would have been done like this. You know, you couldn't have thrown them this way or else this would have happened. So we did have some fun kind of hammering, you know, down the the nuts and bolts there. But, you know, I was also like watching YouTube videos and all those things that novelists do to try to get something right. Um, so I'm, I'm glad it feels right. And the stairs collapsing and the claustrophobic feeling of everybody rushing and people falling and getting trampled. I just was like, I feel like I am right here. Yeah. And I mean, the, the other thing that is exceptionally lucky for me, you know, writing this book was that there is such a good historical record from which to draw from. So, you know, the fire, I really kind of can't emphasize this enough that, you know, yes, it happened in Richmond, but remember the United States was much smaller at that time and and Virginia was much more kind of a central part of the United States. Not to say that, that we're not a very central part now, but you know what I mean? So when the fire happened, it was covered widely, even for that time. You know, you think, okay, we didn't have telephones. We didn't have fax machines. We didn't have cell phones. Like, how did word spread? It spread quickly via letters. You know, there were so many people who were affected. So it was covered in newspapers in, you know, Boston, New York, London, Philadelphia, you know, all the major cities up and down the Eastern seaboard were covering the fire. And um, there were also a lot of memorial services held even in other cities, in other towns in Virginia to help the families that lived locally, you know, grieve whoever it was that they had lost in the fire. And those memorial services were often the, the, you know, the, they were written down and you could kind of walk away with like a a souvenir. (laughs) And then printers started to print all of the investigative findings, the newspaper articles, the sermons 
in these books that people bought to have these commemorative, you know, items they could keep for about the fire. So that's all to say that there actually is a great deal of documentation about this fire despite the fact that now if you just asked 10 people in New York City, you know, have you ever heard of the Richmond Theater fire? All 10 of them would say no, right? Has it surprised your neighbors or people you know in Richmond when you talk about it? Do most of them know it or is it as you mentioned earlier about 50/50? Yeah, it's it's honestly it's been fun because I will say, you know, I'll say, yo, I'm working on something new or, oh yeah, the book's coming out in April. And, and people say, oh yeah, what, what's it about again? And, and I, I'll say, oh, the Richmond theater fire, but I always have to kind of give them a minute to, you know, to say, oh, I actually, I didn't, I don't know about that, you know? So it's, it's actually led to some really, really fun conversations. And, and the cool thing is that there's an organization, a nonprofit in Richmond, historic Richmond that owns and operates Monumental Church, which is the church that was built on the site of the theater as a, as a monument to those who had died. So we're also able to kind of bring attention to this historic landmark, which was designed by Robert Mills, um, who's the same architect who de- designed the Washington Monument. And so there are just all these fun connections that are being made and yeah, a lot of, a lot of attention on, on this kind of forgotten piece of American history. Are you going to have a book event there? Yes, we're doing the launch party there, which is going to be a lot of fun. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. It's it. The church is deconsecrated now, so um, you know it's it's legit. <laughs> you can have a party there. You're like, it's okay. I promise. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what surprised you the most when writing the houses on fire? The thing that surprised me the most was the number of women who died, and. The fact that in the aftermath, there was so much kind of debate and covering up of the fact that so many women had died. There was a lot of, you know, I, I keep thinking about the, the phrase, thou doth protest too much, right? After the fire, you know, as the list of the dead became public and, and more names were added to it. It was clear that, you know, of the 72 people who had died, the, the vast majority of them were women. The numbers were in the 50s. And of course, at this time, you don't actually hear the testimonies of any women in the papers or, you know, any of the, the kind of public record is all written by white men. So the white men in Richmond, of course, as they're writing for the Inquirer and giving their testimonials, they are not addressing the fact that this many women have died. And then when you get to to other cities like Baltimore um, and they're reporting the fire, they start to throw a little shade on Richmond and say, well, why have so many women died? What, why, why so many women? And then you get the scurrying in Richmond of all of these white men saying, well, you know, it was their dresses or it was actually that we were so virtuous we had given up our seats in the boxes to our you know our our women and we had gone down to the pit which of course turned out to be easier to escape and so they were just kind of protesting very loudly this idea that they hadn't been um as chivalrous as as they maybe could have been and so one of the the challenges for me and and it was really kind of great fun was to imagine like what the real reason was. And of course, 
the most logical reason if you start peeling back the onion and really thinking about, you know, mass hysteria and pandemonium and, you know, all of the things you would expect in in a fire of this magnitude is that the men trampled, you know, their their wives and daughters and these women that they were so close with. And and then, you know, that was for me just an interesting there's so much in this time period made of uh, chivalry, Southern gentility, you know, these kind of uh, markers of the Southern gentleman that we have held in esteem, but that are actually just propaganda, right? And so I enjoyed the juxtaposition of, you know, seeing these guys, you know, in the public record, kind of talking out of one side of their mouth, and then reading between the lines and imagining what had actually happened. I think that's the part where you write so much about the trampling and everybody rushing out that makes all of that so effective too, because you've got two layers to it, just the the general pandemonium. But also the fact that a lot of these men were like, I'm worried about myself more than I'm worried about my wife or my family or whoever was attending with them. Right. And it's a very human, you know, instinct, I think, like in that situation to save yourself, right? Like I, I don't even, it's not that they can necessarily be blamed. It's just that then, you know, they, they are, of course, bigger than the women around them. It makes a certain amount of sense that they would that they would get out a little more successfully, right? If everyone is kind of out for themselves. But then once they kind of, once the dust had settled and they they had their mouthpiece again, right? They're, they're back in control of the narrative and, and they're publishing the newspapers and publishing their testimonials. They were very quick to kind of fall back in line with, with the, the more like prescribed narrative of like, oh no, we were gentlemen till the end. And that's, that's where the story was. You know, there, there were a couple times like that where I thought, okay, this, this is the, you know, the, as, as a novelist, your, your novelist antenna go up and, and you say, okay, this is, this is where the story is. And I do agree with that. But I think if I were put in that situation, I would certainly turn around for my husband and you my would kids. Hope, right? I mean, I would hope. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I could live with myself if I just made myself run out and didn't worry about anybody that was with me, friend or family. I don't right. know. I think that's one of the benefits of of writing disaster narratives in general and aftermath stories. And, you know, we we like these stories. I mean, partly we feel a little ghoulish liking them, right? But but we like them because they force us to ask ourselves, what would we do in this situation? Um, would I would I have, you know, done any better? And and we all like to think, yes, yes, I would have, right? Right. It's hard to think about. I know. Well, what about the title and the cover? I just love the cover. And I was so curious how it came about and then how you landed on The House is on Fire for the title. You know, the title was the second title I came up with. I had a, I had one that everyone was very kind to me about, you know, my agent, my editor. Um, and every time I would use it, they'd be like, well, title TBD. You're like, okay, that means it's not staying. But I kept, you know, I had to save the word document as something. So I kept saving it as that. And then one day uh, I was actually at a writing residency in Maine and and I I had I had had two ideas, but but one of them was the house is on fire, which of course, as you know, if you've read the book, is is the line that 
the actors use when they announce to the crowd that that the theater is on is in fact on fire and and that everyone needs to you know needs to flee so that that line is kind of a, a famous line in, in the historical record and and I use it in the novel and so as soon as I emailed my editor and said what about you know this uh she wrote back 3 seconds later and I think it had like a bunch of expletives cuz my editor's great and uses expletives, but you know, so she, she's like, this is, you know, I won't say it here, but this is so effing good, you know, whatever. It was like, okay, this is, this is the title. So that was, that was how we came upon that. And then, you know, the cover, I got to say, Simon and Schuster knocked it out of the park with this one. And they, this is not the first cover. We had a couple of other ones and every time they would send me one, I would love it. And I would say, okay, great. This is a great cover. And then you know, they'd write me a few weeks later and say, actually, we came up with a better one. And, and I'd say, oh, great. And I love this one too. And this was the third cover that they sent me where they said, we have a new one. And, and I, I like it too. I think, you know, I really wanted a cover that conveyed that there was a theater involved because of course, you know, the phrase, the house is on fire could be a a theater house, but it could also be, you know, a residential house or something else. So I like the fact that the, the cover conveys that that we are talking about a theater. I like the color so much too, because I think it really distinguishes your book. I'm all about covers that are unique and different, and you're not going to look at it and think, okay, which book is that again? Or Mm -hmm. it looks just like 10 other books, but I think it's so different and it's beautiful. And I'm sure after the third cover, you were thinking, I'm not going to get attached until I know we have a final cover. Yeah, I know. No, you do reach a point where, you know, and well, this one also... I was writing this book under contract, you know, which is different, of course, than when you write your debut novel, where you're just writing quietly by yourself for years on end, and no one is giving you feedback on anything. But this one, you know, as they were working on covers, I was still very much like under the gun trying to finish the text. And so sometimes when they would send me a cover, I was like, okay, great, great. Like, because I just couldn't even look up from what I, you know, I was so terrified that I wasn't going to finish in time that, that the covers all felt like that's the gravy that you get to deal with, you know, after you've written a great book. You're like, don't remind me that I have not finished this book yet. Yeah. Or like, don't remind me that this is going to be a real book. (laughs) Well, I think the cover turned out outstanding. Ah, Thank you. Well, what about what you've read recently that you really liked? You know, I the I was on a train yesterday for a couple of hours and I finished The Glass Hotel, which I had never read. So that's, I feel bad to not recommend something more current, but that is something that I absolutely adored by Emily St. John Mandel. I also, in it, along the same vein of reading things that I should have read several years ago, I just finished Less because I wanted to read Less is Lost. And and needed to start at the beginning. So, so I finished that. You know, one book that I'm really recommending right now is um, Cecilia Rabessa's Everything's Fine, which is a book coming out in June or July. So it, you've got a couple more months, but it is a really uh, smart kind of testimony to, you know, just race relations and politics in our time but set up in this kind of rom-com-y way that, I don't know, I just loved, I loved the novel. So I think everyone will enjoy that when it comes out. I'm in the middle of the complicities 
um, by Stacey Durasmo. I'm not even familiar with that last one. The other three I'm aware of, but I'm not even familiar with the fourth one. It's a it's a woman who is recovering kind of it's after her husband, it, her husband is caught in like a financial, you know, like a Ponzi scheme, kind of a little Bernie Madoff-ish. And so she is building her life, you know, rebuilding her life in the wake of that and kind of trying to figure out what she knew and didn't know and how much was she kind of intentionally hiding, you know, from the truth. Um, of what her what her husband was doing, and there's a whale, and uh, just yeah, I'm enjoying it. That sounds interesting. Again, another book that probably makes you think about what would you do in that situation. Right? Yeah, exactly. I love those books. Well, Rachel, this has been delightful. Thank you so much for coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast, and I can't wait for everybody to read The House Is on Fire. Thank you for having me. Coming up on Five Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional Book, Book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading! reading.